chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and 9 through verse 10. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malalon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malalon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Heavenly Father, um, we ask this morning that you would just remind us of the truth of who you are, what you've done for us in order to call us out, to make us different. Lord Jesus, you are an exceptional Savior, and you've called us to be an exceptional people. So Father, I pray this morning that you would would speak, uh, that the words of people here are yours and not mine. And uh, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Just have a seat. Well, we noticed from the passage that we just read um, that in this time, in this culture, it is pretty significant that even uh, uh, the name of a dead man is remembered. Uh, and the question that I want to begin with this morning is, is will your name be remembered? Will your name be remembered? I want to begin this morning um, by looking at Exodus 32, uh, verses 31 and 32, uh, and just to go back and talk about uh, this, this idea for, for a minute about the importance of, of a name. So uh, God raises a, a man named Moses up to go and rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. Um, he leads them out of Egypt, and he's taking them towards the promised land. But God leads them into the wilderness in order to uh, make this people his. He's going to give them a new identity. He's going to give them a new purpose. And that's going to happen because he's going to give them a law. And so he calls Moses up to the top of the mountain where he's giving Moses the law. And, and there's something else that's happening down below. The, the people are uh, they're coming out of slavery in Egypt, but they're coming also out of idolatry in Egypt. And they are, are looking for something to worship. Moses has been gone for a long time. They need something, apparently, to worship, something to bow down to. And so they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and, and Aaron makes for them a golden calf. And he, he points to the golden calf, and he says, this is the God that brought you out of slavery. And they begin to worship this thing, begin to bow down to this thing. 
And meanwhile, uh, God and, and Moses up on the mountain, God is like, you should know what's going on down below. That these people that I've rescued from slavery, that I've done all of the work to redeem out of this, these people are now bowing down to a golden idol saying that it is God instead of me. And, and this is a horrible, horrible, grotesque sin, and, and God is on the verge of just wiping them out until Moses intercedes. And in chapter 32, verses 31 and 32, we see this. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, for they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of your book that you have written. Do you see that? Moses is interceding on their behalf. They are really, really guilty. And he's asking God to forgive these people. And he says, if you won't forgive them, then erase my name from history. Erase me. The book that Moses is talking about is the book that God is writing. Is, it's scripture. It's God's redemptive story. It's, it's, it's creation, fall, redemption, and, and restoration. It's what we have in our hands. This is the book that, that God is writing. And Moses is saying, blot me out of it. If you're not going to forgive them, erase me. The Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans 9.3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Paul's saying, I would prefer to be rejected. If necessary, I would be rejected and accursed by God so that these people would be accepted and redeemed by God. He's interceding on, on their behalf, willing to pay the ultimate price so that they could be saved. And we see in Jesus, the Son of God, the ultimate reality of what this looks like to intercede as he takes on flesh and he comes to us and he lives a life that we can't live and then he lays down that life. He comes not to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. And Jesus, he becomes the one who intercedes on our behalf and pays the ultimate price so that we might find salvation. And as a result of that, we see in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, it says, The one who, will, who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of love, life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus has interceded. He's laid down his life. And if we will come to him by faith, then we get his righteousness, and he remembers our name. Our name is written in the book of life. And before God the Father, Jesus remembers our name. Can you imagine standing next to Jesus before the throne of God, and Jesus knows your name? Will your name be remembered? Your name matters. Your name matters. Will your name be remembered? This is, is at the heart of the passage that we're looking at today in, in Ruth chapter 4. Uh, last week we talked about the fact that, that love is, is self-sacrificing. It's not self-serving. And we see this demonstrated by Ruth. Uh, here is this, this girl who is, who's left her home, she's left her family, she's left her people, and the, the gods that she's worshipped in order to embrace Naomi and, and embrace a new people and a new God. She's, she's given up everything for Naomi. And she's gone, gone so far as to say that where you die, I will die. 
We see the self-sacrificing love of, of Ruth demonstrated in, in chapter 3. And then she goes to Boaz, and, and he's sleeping on the threshing floor, and she peels back the, the garments over his, his feet and kneels beside him. And when he, he wakes up, she proposes marriage to him. But more than that, she asks him to be a redeemer. She asks him to, to, to put the, the corner of his cloak over her and to ceremoniously cover her and be the blessing that he invoked over her when he said that you've gone to God to be covered by his wings. She asked him to be a redeemer. And we talked about what that means last week. It means three things in this case. That, that, she, that he's going to need to buy land that he doesn't get to keep, that he's going to um, have a son that he doesn't get to name, and that he's going to, uh, to take care of a widow that he has no responsibility for. This is a great, great sacrifice that she is asking him to do. And we see the sacrificial love of Boaz stepping up to the plate and saying, I will make sure this happens. I will make sure that you are redeemed. There's somebody in line closer to this than I am. There's an order. I will make sure that you are redeemed. And if it's, if it's not me, it'll be this person. I'll redeem you, even, even, if, even if I don't get to have you, is what Boaz says. And so we find ourselves in chapter 4, and, and Boaz is, is going about making this happen, going to, to, to make this redemption possible for, for Ruth and Naomi. We talked about uh, the fact last week that, that Ruth is a very different book. It's really different. Like, it's a, not just different from us in our cultural standpoint, like, it's not just different from, from the time in which we're living and, and, and all of that stuff, but, but it's also a different kind of love story. I mean, the way that we use love really isn't seen in uh, the book of Ruth. It has a different answer for what love looks like. It has a different answer for what marriage looks like compared to the culture in which we live. But this is a different book for another reason. Have you noticed in the book of Ruth that there's no villain? Have you noticed that? There's no bad guy. And Ruth. There's no sinner. You notice that? You don't see like, like a, 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 an evil king oppressing somebody. Right? You, you don't see like an external army at war with them. You don't see people within hand, giving themselves over to idolatry. Right? You, you don't see a bad guy in the book of Ruth. I mean, look at Elimelech. Elimelech. Elimelech is this guy who at the very beginning, he, he has a piece of the promised land. He has this land that's been given to him by God. But because of, of hardship and famine, he picks up his family and he moves to Moab, which is the sworn enemy of the Israelites. And yet you don't see the author or the narrator of Ruth saying that what he did was sin. We're not, we're not told that what he did was the wrong thing or the bad thing. We don't see that. You look at, at, at Chilion and, and, and Malon. These boys married Moabite girls. And according to passages like we find in Deuteronomy, that was a no-no. These Moabite girls, they have a different God than you. They worship Chemosh. And in the worship of Chemosh, people actually sacrificed their children. This was a pagan religion. And, and Orpah and Ruth, they're Moabite girls who worship a different God than you. They should not have, have married them. And yet you don't see in Ruth the narrator saying that what Chilion and Malon did was a sin. They're not, they're not villains. They're not bad guys. We look at Naomi's attitude, right? She's lost her husband. She's lost her children. She's bitter and she's angry at God. And in that bitterness and anger, some stuff that's coming out of her isn't truthful. And it's accusatory of God. 
And yet you don't see the narrator of Ruth accusing uh, Naomi of, of sin. We don't see uh, her being labeled as, as, the, as a bad person or as, as a sinful person. Look at Orpah. Um, Orpah has the good intent of, of leaving home with Naomi and Ruth, and along the way, Naomi stops the girls and she says, go home. Just, just turn around, go home, back, go back to your moms. Um, I hope that you find a husband. I hope that you find rest in, in a good life. And Orpah says, okay, and she does. She goes home. And we don't look at Orpah and say, well, she was a sinner. She was neglectful. She was, she's a bad person for doing what she is doing. Now, now look at the, the unnamed guy here in Ruth chapter 4. And, and I want to I hold him up and compare this, this element of the story to what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 through 10, regarding what Leverite marriage is. We talked a little bit about this in the past, but just follow along with me. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in, in all of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Do, do you see how important it is to God that a person's name not be forgotten. It's so important that if a man dies without having a son to carry on his name, his wife goes to his brother and he provides a namesake. And there's, there's, there's a, a long line of people. If the brother's not available, then it goes to extended family. Then it goes to the clan. Then it goes to the tribe. But, but it is ensured among the people of Israel that nobody's name is forgotten. And the stakes are so high that if you refuse to do it, if you refuse to perpetuate your brother's name, then, then you are shamed in front of the whole town. Now look at what we see in Ruth 4. Ruth 4, 5 through 8. Then Boaz says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his handle and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. What a tame version, right? According to Deuteronomy, what should happen when he says, oh, I can't redeem it, Ruth should walk up to him, take the sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and embarrass him in front of the whole 
But instead, we see this just very pleasant interaction where it's like, no, I really can't do it. It's kind of an inconvenience. And Bella's like, hey, no big deal. Here's, here's my sandal. Okay, have a nice day. Like, it's all very clean and polite, isn't it? There's no bad guy in Ruth. There's no villain here. There's no sinner here. Why is that? Why? Well, to be clear, the author of Ruth, he, he isn't, he or she, is not saying that all people are the same. And, and he's not saying that there are no contrasts. And he's not saying that people aren't sinners or that people don't live up to the standard. But see, what the author of Ruth is doing is instead of pointing at the bad people and contrasting them and, and saying, the bad are so bad, right? Instead, he's pointing to other people and saying, the good are so good. It's not that the villains are so awful. It's that the heroes are so awesome. Instead of looking at the negative side of it, he's promoting the positive side of what it is supposed to look like. You see, in the book of Ruth, we're introduced to the eye of, uh, idea of hesed. It is, it is a Hebrew uh, word that, that doesn't have a direct English translation because not one English word covers what it means. But basically, hesed is, is kindness, it's faithfulness, it's mercy, it's goodness, it's loyalty, and it's steadfast love. All of that is encapsulated in Hesed. And what we see in Ruth is this woman and this man who embody what it looks like to, to be Hesed. And they're the ones that make the contrast. So when we look at Elimelech and we see a guy who he encounters the fact that he might starve to death, his response is to pick up his family and leave. Ruth, she has nothing her and Naomi, her response to having nothing to eat is to roll up her sleeves and go to the field to glean. And she says, I'm going to trust that I'm going to find favor in somebody's sight and ultimately that God's going to take care of me. See, we could look at Elimelech and say, man, how faithless is that guy? But that's not what the author is doing. What the author is doing is, how faithful is Ruth? How bold is she? How daring Look at Ruth. You could look at, at Malalone and, and Chilion. And you could say, man, these, these two clowns, they, uh, you know, they should have gone back home to marry good Israelite girls. But, but they're, they're marrying Moabite girls. And we could look at them and, and be like, this, this is gross sin. You know, they're, they're just... They're doing what they want to do. They're fulfilling their, their, their need. They're thinking about themselves, right? But that's not, that's not what's being conscious. What's being conscious is you look at Boaz, and the reality is, is Malone, he married Ruth as, as a pagan girl who worshiped a different God. Boaz will marry Ruth, and she's, she's a believer in Yahweh who worships him. But see, Boaz doesn't marry Ruth for what he can get from her. He marries Ruth for what he can give her. So we're not supposed to look at Malalone as, and, and, and see his failure. What we're supposed to do is look at, at Boaz and see his steadfast love, his kindness, his generosity. That's what's being contrasted here. You could look at Orpah, and, and she, she turns around, and she walks back home. And, and you could say, wow, figures, you know. She'd go do something like that. That's not what the author's doing. The author's saying, she didn't do anything wrong. 
She's doing what's natural. Who wouldn't go back home underneath those circumstances? But look at Ruth. Ruth has given up everything to serve Naomi. Do you, do you see the hesed? Do you, do you see the loving kindness? Do, do you see what, what, what she is doing? You, know, you, you look at Naomi, and, and she's frustrated, and she's angry at God, she's bitter, and all this stuff is coming out towards him because she lost her husband, she lost her sons. And who wouldn't respond the way Naomi responds? And yet, Ruth lost her husband, and, and she's not calling God names. She, she has this, this loyalty and this faithfulness and this kindness and this generosity, and it's not that Naomi's bad. That's the natural response. That's what you would expect. But it's that Ruth is so much more. She she's, has said she's got something more. She's different. And the way that Boaz loves her, it's different. It's beautiful. And that's what the author's doing. He's, he's pointing to something lovely and beautiful and exceptional in this Hesed-like love. Now let's walk through the event of that day. First of all, the night before, Boaz is with Ruth and he promises he's going to provide a redeemer. He's going to take care of the matter. And so he gets up early the next morning and he goes to the town gate. And, and that's the place where, where everything happens. Uh, people are coming and going through the city gate. So if you want to meet up with somebody, <clears throat> that's where you're going to run into them. And because of that, that's where business transactions are handled. That's where legal procedures are handled. And so he goes to the gate, and he waits for him. And sure enough, along comes this other guy. Hey, turn aside here, brother. We got some business to discuss. And uh, he identifies 10 other elders of the city. And hey, guys, I need you guys to be witnesses to, to something. And so he says to, uh, to, to the unnamed redeemer, he, he says, look, um, our relative Elimelech had some land. And his widow is selling that land. And you're the closest in proximity to be a redeemer for that land. Do you want it? He says, yeah, I want that. Now, I want to remind you that, that what it means is, is that he's going to buy a piece of land that he doesn't get to keep. It would go to the descendant of Elimelech, right? Elimelech doesn't have any descendants, does he? So in, in his mind, <clears throat> he, gets to, he gets to keep a piece of property. See, we talked about this last week. There's something called the year of Jubilee. <clears throat> so um, God has given you a portion of the promised land, and it's meant to be your portion forever. It's meant to be in your family, passed down forever. You're not supposed to lose it. But God makes this provision that if you come across hard times financially, you can sell it to, to a close relative, and they will use the land for a period of time, but at the end of that time, at the year of Jubilee, that land returns to you. It's just given back to you. All debts are forgiven. The land is restored, so it stays in the person's name forever, right? So here's this guy, and he's looking at this opportunity to have this land, knowing that Naomi is beyond childbearing years. We found that out in chapter 1. She's beyond childbearing years, and so when she dies, this land's his. You'll never have to let go of it, right? Then Boaz throws the curveball. Boaz says, oh, by the way, you don't just have to take care of Naomi. You get Ruth. 
Ruth is the widow of Malon, Elimelech's son. And you need to perpetuate Malon's name. And at this, the guy says, oh, I can't. Uh, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. This is an excuse. The, the, the two inheritances would, would not cross. All right? the, the, the son that he would have by Ruth would get Elimelech's land, but he wouldn't get anything else. This is an excuse. There, the reality is, to redeem is to come a cost to you. You buy land that you don't get to keep. You have a son you don't get to name. You have to take care of not one, but two widows now until they die. And the man is making up, basically he says, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take that responsibility. I, I, that's all give and no return. That's not, I don't want to do that. And how many of us would? How many of us see someone in need and because of its great inconvenience, we continue to just walk on by? This is a huge inconvenience that this man wants nothing to do with. And so Boaz says, I will. I will buy land that I don't get to keep. I will have a son I don't get to name. I will take care of these women until they die. I will step into the gap. I will intercede. I will be what they need, and I will get nothing in return. You see, that's a said. And we're meant to look at this guy and see that's a normal response. That, that's just a typical person acting in a typical, normal way. But Boaz, Man, did you see what Boaz did? Do you see that he's willing to sacrifice? Do you see that he's willing to lay down his life? Do you see that he is willing to, to go to great lengths in order to provide for these women? Do you, do you see what Boaz did? That's a said. That's beautiful. See, you look at Elimelech and I mean, how many of us would pick up our family and move to where the grass is greener in order to provide? It's a normal thing to do. You, you look at Malone and Shulian, and hey, a man's got needs. It's time to get married. The girls that are closest to hand are Moabites, so what? It's the normal thing to do. Like for Orpah, the normal thing to do, go home. For, for Naomi, to, to be angry at God and vent that, that's the normal thing to do. But, but, but we're not about what being normal is. God's called us to be something else. God wants us to be more. God wants us to be said. God wants us to be a different kind of people who look and think and act differently with such love for one another that we were willing to lay down our lives at great cost. We're meant to look completely different than what's normal. Our words and our actions should be such that people look at us and they don't just shrug their shoulders and say, typical. That's ordinary. That's what I would expect from a person in their place. Instead, we should see our lives, they should see our lives 
and they should be blown away by our kindness. They shouldn't be impressed by our faithfulness. They should be enamored with our mercy, struck by our goodness, fascinated by our loyalty, and inspired by our steadfast love. We should be different. And the world around us shouldn't look at the Christian community and say, typical hypocrites, acting one way on Sunday and a different way on Monday. Typical judgmental people wanting to take the sliver out of my eye while they got a plank in their own. Typical transactional people who will only love you for what they can get out of you. Typical legalistic people trusting in their rules to save. Typical normal. The world should look at the church and see Hesed kindness and mercy and grace and goodness and faithfulness and loyalty and steadfast love. And see the rest as normal. But see this has said and, and be in awe of it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're supposed to be light. We are supposed to be the contrast to the darkness that's all around us. We're supposed to be light. We're also supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be savory. We're supposed to be flavorful. We're supposed to contrast the blandness of what it means to be normal, to be the standard. We're supposed to be exceptional, flavorful. You know, Peter says that we're also supposed to have an answer for the hope that we have. And what that assumes is, is that people will look at us and see that we're different in the hope that we have. Throughout the New Testament, we see this word hagios. It's, it's a Greek word, and it literally means holy ones. And this is the word for Christians oftentimes. Holy ones. Uh, it's often translated as saint, but at the root of the Greek word, it means Different. Bruce Shelley wrote in his church history in plain English, a holy thing is different from other things. The temple is holy because it is different from other buildings. The Sabbath day is holy because it is different from other days. The Christian, therefore, is a person who is fundamentally different. Are you different? Are you different? Or are you normal? So often we want to condemn the bad person, right? We're on the lookout for the sinner, for the villain, for the bad guy. And by doing that, we can elevate ourselves and make ourselves feel pretty good. But normal isn't godly. Exceptional. We have an exceptional Savior. Son of God comes and he takes on flesh and he goes to the cross and he lays down his life in order that we might have that righteousness. He gives everything in order to intercede for us. He does all of that so that your name can be remembered. To stand before the throne of God and walk up and Jesus is like, this is John. Oh, hey, this is Karis. 
I know them by name. I've called them. I've redeemed them. And I will never forget your name. Your name is written in a book and it will never be lost. Will your name be remembered? Because of Jesus, it will. Because of Jesus, it will. No other thing that you accomplish in your life. You may have a fantastic career. You, you may do things nobody has ever done before. You may blow people away in your field. You may be an outstanding father, an outstanding husband. You, you may be remembered by your children for a long time to come. But if you don't know Jesus and he doesn't know you, then your name will be forgotten. have an exceptional savior and he calls us to be an exceptional people he, he calls us to lay down our lives and pick up our crosses and follow him see we look at Boaz and, and we see a picture of what Jesus is like and, and we look at this picture and we're like and that's that's love that, that's beautiful. That's what I want to be like. Those are the kind of people I want to surround myself with. That's the kind of community I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of that. But the reality is, is, is that kind of heart is a sacrificial heart. It's a heart that says, God, like Moses, forgive them or blot out my name. Like Paul would say, I would rather be accursed than to see these people perish. To, to be willing to love that much. To lay down your life the way that Jesus laid down his life. That's his said, that's what he's calling us to. Make no mistake, that is what he's calling you to. Exceptional Savior. He's calling us to be an exceptional people. You know what the reality is? His grace is sufficient for you if you're not exceptional. You realize that Elimelech and Malon and Chilion did nothing, and yet we know their names. His grace is not contingent upon you being exceptional. It was there before you ever had the notion. I love the way uh, that the book of Ruth ends. Uh, Boaz uh, marries Ruth and uh, for the second time in, in Ruth, what we see is the overt actions of God. And it says that, that God gave Ruth conception. He had, she got to have a son, and his name was Obed. And he's placed in, in Naomi's lap, and she's just overjoyed with this. And, and I love it that there's this picture of, of redemption that happens because a baby boy is born in Bethlehem. And then we see this, uh, the, 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 the heritage we see the genealogy from Obed on down to a guy named David. And then Matthew will later pick up the story and take us back to David and bring us back down to Jesus to another baby boy born to save in a place called Bethlehem. Isn't this a beautiful story? Isn't this an amazing story? Isn't this a, an amazing reality that should wreck our lives and change us? Make us different. It is the gospel in your heart that will wreck you and make you different.
you want that. I want that so badly for us as a church. I, I want this to be a people that when somebody is just around you, they see the difference in your life. That, that you are somebody so changed, they cannot help but notice. I don't want us to be a normal church. I don't want us to be the same. I want us to be a people that magnifies how exceptional our Savior is. And He is. He so is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you write a good story. You write a beautiful, beautiful story. And at the heart of it is your son showing us how to lay down our lives. And you say that if we were willing to give up our life, then we we're going to find new life, better life, full life, abundant life. God, I pray that we wouldn't be content with being normal. I pray that we would get involved. I pray that we would see the need and get involved and not just walk by. I pray that we would have the eyes to see the people all around us who need you and they need the transformation power of your gospel. I pray that you would make us an exceptional people by the power of your Holy Spirit not through our programs or, or, or through our performance, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, change this church and make us an exceptional people who, like a mirror, reflects your marvelous, wonderful glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray.